Please, brothers and sisters, turn in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from the Gospel of Mark, as we will be looking at chapter 4, verses 30 to 34. Mark chapter 4, verses 30 to 34. Hear with me then, brothers and sisters, the reading of God's Word. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, He spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to His own disciples, He explained everything. Thus far is the reading of God's Word. Today, brothers and sisters, we're coming to the end of the section of parables taught by Jesus in Mark chapter 4, which we said were called kingdom parables. And we said that they were called kingdom parables because all four of them taught us something about the kingdom and its nature or its characteristics, although all four teach us some, something different, a little bit different about the nature of the kingdom. Right, the, the parable of the sower taught us that not everyone will receive the message of the kingdom. In fact, it depended on the heart of the hearer, just like the good soil. Right? Only that heart that was converted by Christ was able to receive the message by faith. Then we read in the parable of the lamp that just as the message of the kingdom was not to remain hidden but was to be revealed to the world, just like a lamp was not to be hidden, but to be placed on a, stand, on a lampstand so that everyone can see, so was the message of the kingdom. It was to be revealed to the Word so that all would be able to see. In the parable of the seed growing, we learn that the growth of the kingdom is mysterious. It's mysterious. We don't know how. We can't see the intricacies of it working with inside the believer. Just as the farmer can't see the seed working underneath the surface of the earth. And yet we learned in this parable that our Lord is sovereign over His kingdom. He causes the growth and He keeps us and protects us in His kingdom through the Word and the Spirit until He returns to collect His harvest. And now today in the last parable, in the final parable of the kingdom, we learn about the growth of the kingdom which Jesus compares and says is similar to the growth of the mustard seed. And in, and in making this comparison, what Jesus is going to teach us today and to demonstrate and to show us is that the, the, the beginning of the kingdom is, is humble. Right? It starts with humble and small beginnings. It has steady growth until it reaches its completion. Now, as you all sit here this morning, 
And I know all of you love the Word of God. I'm sure that there is some tiny piece of some of you who's ready to move on from the parables. You're ready to move on. It's been five weeks in a row of parable teaching. And I think it's natural, isn't it, that we like just plain teaching. Right? We're, as people, we're more drawn to plain teaching. Right? Isn't that what we say to people as they speak to us? You know, Don't beat around the bush. Just tell me exactly what you mean. I know my wife tells me all the time. You know, I don't want to have to think about what you mean or what you're thinking. Or what you're just say it, please. Be, right? Be clear. And so I think that we can understand in part what some of these people in the crowd are thinking and how very frustrated they must become as they've been hearing parable after parable after parable being told to them by Jesus and yet not having them explained to them. We're told here in verses 33 and 34 that it was with parables that Jesus frequently spoke. And He did not speak to the crowds, those who hardened themselves against Christ, with anything other than parables. And it wasn't until the, uh, the crowds dispersed that then Jesus would explain the parables to His disciples. And thanks be to God that we here today are able to understand the parables as well. And we can understand them for a variety of reasons. One, in the Scriptures, some of them are explained to us. And so Jesus tells us exactly what He means. For some of them, the meanings carry over. For the the parables He doesn't explain, a lot of times He uses the same elements. right? And those meanings just carry over to that parable. And so it helps us to discern what the parable means. But ultimately, we are able to understand these parables because just like the apostles of old, We have been given eyes to see and ears to hear. right? We, like them, have that inward illumination of the Spirit of God which is necessary for saving understanding of the Word of God. right? It is by God that He has granted to us His Spirit so that we might understand those things freely given to us by God. And it is with that Spirit who reveals God to us that we are going to look at this parable today and ask the question and answer the question, how is the growth of the kingdom, how does it bear resemblance to the growth of the mustard seed? Right? How is both of those growth stages comparable? And so we're going to do that under three headings this morning. Okay, The first is the start. The first is the start. The second is the expansion. The expansion. And the third is the completion. So the start, the expansion, and the completion. Now Jesus opens up this morning in our text by asking two questions. He says, with with what can we compare the kingdom of God to? Or what parable should we use for it? What Jesus is ultimately saying is, How can I get you to understand what the kingdom of God is like? And so he, then we turn to verse 31 where he says, It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. You see, Jesus likens the start of the kingdom of God to the start of the mustard seed when it is initially placed in the ground. And so what is Jesus saying? 
He's saying that they both start small. They both start small. A mustard seed is about one-tenth of an inch in size. That's how small it is. One-tenth of an inch in size. Now, there are many people out there today who like to attack Scripture. They try to find places in which they can discredit the Scriptures. And here in verse 31 is one such place. Because what people will, will say today is that botanists have discovered that in fact, the mustard seed is not the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. It is the orchid seed. It is the orchid seed. You see, but what these people fail to realize as what we have, I've been pointing out to you over the weeks is that parables are given to teach us something. Right? They're given to teach us something. Jesus isn't trying to give his hearers a lesson on the science of plants. Right? He's not teaching a, a course in botany. But what Jesus is doing is he's drawing on the size of the mustard seed, which would have been pictured in their mind because it was common during that time, to describe to them, in comparison, the smallness of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus, what he's doing is, is speaking in hyperbole. This is a proverbial saying. It's well-known traditional Jewish thought that Jesus is drawing on. In fact, in the Scriptures, in the Gospels, the, the mustard seed is, is talked about on five occasions, right? which is an indicator for us that this is a familiar comparison that the Jewish people would have understood when you're trying to talk about something that is small and tiny and insignificant. right? You would draw on the mustard seed. And so this is all that Jesus is trying to do in this parable here today. Right? He's comparing it to a mustard seed which starts out tiny and small. And he's saying, so too is it with the kingdom of God. Now what I find interesting, brothers and sisters, is not what Jesus compares the kingdom to, but rather what he doesn't compare the kingdom to. Right? Jesus doesn't say that the kingdom of God is expensive and shiny. He doesn't say that it's big and it's beautiful and alluring and dazzling for people's eyes. He doesn't say it's glorious. No, He says the kingdom of God, He compares it to something that is weak. He compares it to something that doesn't seem very substantial at all. He compares it to something that seems very unimportant. And so we have to ask why. Why does Jesus do that? Why does He compare the beginning of the kingdom with a mustard seed and not something grand and something voluptuous? Or maybe the better question to ask is, why does He choose to even begin the kingdom in that way? Why does He choose to begin the kingdom in a small, tiny, insignificant way? Instead of bringing it onto the scene, flashy and attractive for all eyes to see. And I think the, the reason He does this is the same reason He chose those who are considered weak in this world to comprise His church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27-29, to 29, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, Jesus starts His kingdom as if it was nothing, just like what the mustard seed looks like in their hand as they look at it, for His own glory. Jesus begins the kingdom with 12 apostles. People who themselves have no real significance in the world. They're fishermen and a tax collector. He doesn't start the kingdom with with kings and generals and rulers, does He? And He does this in order that no one may boast in the kingdom's growth. That no one can take credit for where the kingdom is going. But instead, He chooses then to to start His kingdom in a puny and weak fashion with people not highly thought after. So that God is displaying to everyone, to us and to the world, that the only explanation for its expansion is His power alone. In fact, if you think about it, God demonstrates His glory to us in this manner many times throughout the entirety of Scripture. And it makes sense to us, doesn't it? God will not share His glory. He is jealous for His glory. And we have a prime example of that in the example of Gideon and his army. And so I would ask that you would take up your Bibles and turn with me to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. And as you're turning there, a little context. Gideon has just destroyed the altar of Baal. And so armies have formed in order that they might exact revenge. And so at this time now in our text, Gideon is encamped with his army. And so Judges chapter 7 And we will begin then at verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, Let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you are there. And anyone of whom I will say to you, This one shall go with you shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by him likewise. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men you lacked, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man, to his home. 
you see the same reason that God reduced Gideon's army from 32,000 to 300 is the same reason that God does not start off His kingdom large and powerful and glorious, but instead weak and tiny and unimportant looking so that He may be glorified in what comes from it. Right? God's power is oftentimes seen in our weakness and our frailty, isn't it? And so He's always sought to display His glory in small beginnings. And He actually has done this from the beginning. Think about it. Who is it that our Lord started the entire world with? Two people. When He destroyed the world by the flood, who is it that He repopulated the world with? Eight people. When He formed the nation of Israel, were they a great, glorious nation? No, they started out small. And so how can we expect the church to rise up any other way? It is only right that the church appear on the scene just like the head of the church appeared on the scene. And how did Christ come to this earth? Did He come into this world being greeted with celebration and praise? Did they have parades and festivals for Him? Was He robed in the finest linen? Did they cast down before His feet? the most precious of jewels, and celebrate Him as the King over the world? No. Christ came into this world as the veiled King, born in a manger with no army by His side. His message was despised. It was a stumbling block to the Jew. It was foolishness to the Greek. He certainly was not the King that Israel wanted. He didn't appear powerful and beautiful and glorious. And so when they put Him to death, He died a criminal's death. He did not die and get laid to rest as a king might. He didn't even have the riches of a king when He was on this earth, did He? We know this because when He was to be buried, He didn't even have a tomb to be placed in. We're told in the Gospels that it was Joseph of Arimathea who gave Jesus His own tomb. But now as we consider Jesus, look what this One who has come and taken the form of the servant has done. It is in the One who has died whom everyone else finds life in. This is why Jesus compares the Kingdom of God to the mustard seed. Because they both start small. But they do not stay that way. This takes us then to point number two, which is the expansion. We read in verse 32, Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now, brothers and sisters, the the mustard seed can still be found growing in Palestine today. In fact, they can grow as large as 10 to 15 feet, which is why they're commonly called by people a mustard tree, although technically they are a plant and not a tree. But the point that Jesus is making to His disciples is this, 
that just as the mustard seed starts out small and insignificant, it does not stay that way forever. But in fact, it will grow great. And in the same manner, the kingdom will manifest itself in the same way where it will grow and have a great presence on the earth. Don't we say to our children and grandchildren as they grow up, boy, have you gotten big. I remember when you started out so small and I could hold you in my arms. And now you are bigger than me. This is what happens with growth, right? And this is what Jesus is saying is going to occur with the growth of His kingdom. The church is going to continue to grow. Expansion is inevitable. And expand it did. And it did quickly, didn't it, brothers and sisters? When Peter stood up in that room, in the upper room, that very day after the Lord's ascension, he stood before 120 people. We're told that in Acts chapter 1. In Acts 2, verse 41, in the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls are brought into the kingdom. And this ought to be a lesson for us. Not to despise small things. We're a small church. We are not to despise small things. God starts many things small. And He's able to grow up whatever it is in His time when He wants to and for His glory. But we see this just as in Acts chapter 2, verse 46. We're told that and day by day, attending the temple together, breaking in their homes, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And what can this growth be attributed to? God alone. God alone. It was on the day of Pentecost that the apostles were clothed in the power of God. And it was the pouring out of the Holy Spirit who caused the church's existence. And who now ought to be given the credit for the church's growth and its existence? It's still God alone. Right? What did Jesus say to Peter in Matthew 16? I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we see that today, don't we? Christ is building His church continually in the face of all kinds of opposition. It's truly remarkable when you think about this. That the church began with a small group of believers who were persecuted by the Roman army, the Roman Empire, for proclaiming Christ for proclaiming Christ crucified and Christ resurrected and Christ alone. Yet it was that same Roman Empire who persecuted and who killed the saints. Who That same confession that the saints were professing became the official religion of the Roman Empire only 250 years later after they sought to extinguish the church from the face of the earth. You see how our Lord makes fools of the wise. And when He does, do you not behold His glory? When you see that He holds 
the hearts of kings, of rulers, of all people in His hands. When you see Him bringing all things to pass in the exact manner that He has said He would, does it not make you wonder how anyone can deny that He alone is perfectly, universally, and immutably wise? How can anyone deny that He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end? Yet not only are we taught that like the kingdom, the mustard seed sprouts and grows, but Jesus says that when it grows, it puts out these branches so that the birds of the air may come and build up their nest and find shade in those branches. Right? And Jesus is saying, just like these branches, the kingdom offers protection to all of us who come inside. And this is truly incredible about the kingdom. The kingdom is comprised of sinners. The kingdom is comprised of those who hated God and who hated Christ. It was Sinclair Ferguson in his small commentary on the Gospel of Mark who points out something that I think is very insightful on this text. And I'm paraphrasing, but he says this, that the birds who once tried to swallow up the seed, that mustard seed as it was first scattered, are now the ones who seek in the large plant to find shade within its branches. And he gives to us Saul of Tarsus as an example. Right? Saul tried to swallow up the Christian church. He tried to kill its members. He tried to imprison its followers. He tried to wipe its influence off the face of the earth, but he could not. No one is able to destroy the kingdom. And this kingdom is not like any kingdom. It is a unique kingdom. And that its king extends forgiveness and mercy. Most kings, if treason was to be committed against them, if insurrection was to mount, they would swiftly destroy those who tried to topple the kingdom. But the King of kings and the Lord of lords extends grace and is long-suffering. And in fact, He sends His Son to die for our treason committed against Him. So that traitors like you and I might be reconciled to God and live in eternity with Him forever. Think about that next time someone wants to say that, that God is unfair, right? He abounds in grace and mercy. And glory draws near then, brothers and sisters. Every second of every day, as Christ and the kingdom draw near, as time moves forward. And this takes us then to point number three, which is completion. Completion. So I hope we see that just like the mustard seed, when it is first planted, it starts small, like the kingdom starts small. Then we see that just like the, the mustard seed turns into a, a large plant, so too the kingdom of God grows and expands. But as we see here, there will come a time when the mustard plant reaches maturity and it doesn't grow any longer, right? Well, so too with the kingdom of God. It will one day reach maturity. And what has come in part will 
finally be brought to completion. Right? The kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament has now come in part in Christ and yet it still must be brought to completion. And this only happened because Christ died for the kingdom. He died that He might bring it to its completion. And He tells us this in the Gospel of John. John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says this, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You see, in this text, Jesus is telling His disciples about His death. He's telling them that His death is a necessity in order for the saints to be saved and for the kingdom to grow and mature and to be completed. Jesus says the seed that falls down and doesn't embed itself into the soil simply remains there alone. It just sits there on top all by itself. But the seed that falls into the earth dies as a seed. And it produces a great harvest. And so Jesus is telling His disciples of the necessity of His death. He must die or else He will be alone. He will not have a harvest. And so Jesus has to die in order that He might produce that spiritual harvest which is the kingdom of His saints. And do we see how precious Christ's kingdom is to Himself? That He would descend from heaven to die for it, only that He might ascend then to prepare a place for us so that He might once again at the end of time descend one more time to bring us to where He is. The Father sent the Son to die for us for a purpose much greater than we can understand. It has higher meaning than we can comprehend. He died that God might be glorified in us so that when Christ returns, we might be glorified in Him. But until that day comes, brothers and sisters, we must continue to grow up into full maturity. This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So we have to ask until that day, as we as saints, what are, what is it that we are to do? Do we just twiddle our thumbs and just wait? No, as the, as a church, as a spiritual kingdom of God, we are to continue to preach the gospel. We are to continue to pray. We are to continue to grow up in maturity in the Lord, knowing that God's plan will not fail. And when we read a text like this and see God working out His plan, taking those small and insignificant things and bringing great things from them, don't you ask yourself like I do, how is it that I ever doubt God? How is it that I ever doubt His Word at all? How can I doubt the promises that God has made to me? And because they are His promises, they surely will come to pass, for God cannot lie. But He is gradually bringing this kingdom to completion, not by human achievement or human effort, 
but because history is unfolding exactly as God has planned it to. At Christ's first coming, He laid the foundation. At His second coming, He will bring all things to completion. And at that time, Christ will intervene in human history in a spectacular manner at the appearance of His coming. And when He comes, it will be, it will be to, to bring to completion His kingdom. And it is at that time that all those who tried to strike blows at His kingdom, who tried to extinguish His kingdom, will be put underneath His feet. And He will hand the kingdom over to His Father. Yet what this parable, I think, is teaching us, then, until that maturity reaches its final phase, we are not to lose hope. In fact, what we are being taught is that we are to place all of our trust in God. There are many reasons for people to lose hope today, aren't there? People are saying, when can I just go to the grocery store without having to cover my face? Right? When are things going to return to normalcy? People lose hope over oh, the, the, the downward spiral, the downward trajectory of all that's going on around us. You know, our, is, our, is our First Amendment right of freedom of speech going to continue to be attacked and attacked and attacked? Right? Are we any longer going to be able to, to have civil conversations with people who we disagree with? Or is, it now, is the world just now reduced to, to name-calling and trying to beat people into submission? No more civil discourse is able to be had on this earth. There's so many reasons for people to lose hope. Right? Things seem to be going wrong all the time. Especially if you're a pessimist and you're not an optimist. But this is why hope, hope helps to carry us through. Right? Hope reminds us that Christ is coming again. Hope reminds us that all things are being worked out according to the sovereign plan of God. And that hope ought to provide us enduring comfort. At the same time, hope in Christ's return should cause us to wholeheartedly pursue the Christian life. Because hope sanctifies the believer. Hope causes us to look forward to the full attainment of what we now have in part. This world has no hope. Or at least they have no foundation for whatever hope it is they have. Our hope is found in Christ, in Christ alone, the one who came as a veiled king, but will return as a conquering king in all of his glory. So don't put off your need to enter into his kingdom. For those of you who are already in the kingdom, know that Christ does not cease to work on your behalf. He does not cease to build His kingdom through the hearts of the elect. He will not rest until all that He is, all those whom He has died for, all those who have been renewed by the Spirit will be presented to the Father without blame or spot. And so do you long for that day? Do you long for that day? Do you cry out with the whole host of heaven that we read about in Revelation chapter 6 verse 10 that say, O sovereign Lord, Holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Do you cry out with the saints, Lord Jesus, come quickly. 
Because if you belong to the kingdom, you ought to. And so I ask you here today, do you belong to this kingdom? Do you know? Are you certain of your membership in this kingdom? You can be. If you have repented of your sin, if you have that great sense of guilt, if you have seen of any righteousness you thought you had as nothing but unrighteousness, and if you have turned to Christ by faith and laid hold of His merits, and if you have been renewed by His Spirit and now you long for the consummation of all things. But the reality is, brothers and sisters, that the kingdom is growing with or without you. God is growing it at His speed, how He wants to, and for His glory. And so I would encourage everyone here today, especially those who have not entered into His kingdom, to come and find shade and protection under the outstretched branches of the kingdom. Please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that You have indwelt us with the Spirit who reveals the truth of Your Word to us. We ask, Lord, that we would contemplate and think about Your glory this day, that we would spend time doing such, reflecting on it, reflecting on how You have brought all things to pass exactly as You have said You would. We pray, Lord, that You would continue to add to Your number and that You would grow us in maturity. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.